Hey everyone, it's Jonathan. This week we are talking about abortion. So I do want to give you a little bit of a content warning. We're not going to get into medical issues or anything like that. So I think you should be okay to listen to this. But if you have anything in your past that needs to keep you from listening to this, I totally get that. We will see you next week on a different topic, but wanted to give you that content warning. We're going to start the episode with a clip from a joke from comedian Bill Burr to hopefully give ourselves a chance to laugh before we dive into what is a highly emotional and sensitive topic. So here's the joke, and then we'll get into the rest of the episode. Pro-choice always made sense to me because I don't like people telling me what to do. And I was just like, it's your body. Who am I to tell you what to do with your body? So that always made sense. All right. However, I still think you're killing a baby. See? That's where it gets weird. It's not a baby yet. That's what they say, which may or may not be true. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. But I'll tell you, my gut tells me that doesn't make sense. It's not a baby yet. That would be like if I was making a cake and I poured some batter in a pan and I put it in the oven and then five minutes later you came by and you grabbed the pan, you threw it across the floor. And I went, look, you just ruined my birthday cake. And then you were like, well, that wasn't a cake yet. It's like, well, it would have been. If you didn't do what you just did, there would have been a cake in 50 minutes. Something happened to that cake, you cake murder son of a... Damn, I'm glad I didn't peek in high, high school. Cause my best days would be in the past. I know, I know, I know, I know, looking back, it ain't all bad, but damn, I'm glad I didn't peek in high, high school. Hey everyone, welcome to Unlearning Youth Group, where the podcast where we take a look at all the things we learned back in youth group, find the good, unlearn the bad, and figure out where the heck we go from here. We haven't met. My name is Jonathan Corona. We're joined, as always, by our co-host, Mr. Eric Williams. Eric, go ahead and say hey to the people. Hey, people. What's up? Hey, by the way, if you are still with us to this point in this season, you are either our kind of people or you are just a glutton for punishment. One of the two. There's no in-between. None whatsoever. Like, I'm hoping people are still listening, but we're getting longer and longer each week, so who knows if they actually are. Well, you know, we're going to hit this really early as marketers, you know, uh, both of us know that we have to try and uh, find our niche and our target audience. So all these first three episodes or first four episodes have done is just start to just whittle down the people that's like, hey, maybe this isn't for you if uh, if you can't handle these conversations. And uh, we're just going to go right from the frying pan into the fire today. Yeah, we're going from racism to abortion. So we do know today is a little bit touchy. It's why we put that content warning at the beginning of the episode. And like we have all season, if you're new to us, we're starting each episode out with a disclaimer. We want you to know what we're about, what we're not about. And this season is not about trying to convince you to vote a certain way. It's not about telling you you should vote for one party or the other. And it's not shaming you into feeling guilty about who you voted for in the past or who you plan to vote for in the future. This season is about looking at how some topics have been co-opted by politicians who have used the church for political gain. It's about showing how there are issues that Christians must care about while acknowledging the liberty we have to come to different conclusions on how best to fix those issues. And it's about reframing the role of politics within our Christian worldview. Today, we're going to look a lot about at how those politicians and political activists overtook an issue. And then we're also going to talk about how there's some liberty in that issue. So we are talking about abortion, but what we are talking about today is specifically how white evangelicals, which is what most of our audience is, how they were taught anything less than full outright banning of abortions is wrong. Many of us were taught that you cannot be pro-choice and be a Christian, and we were told you cannot vote for a pro-choice candidate if you are a Christian. In fact, it actually created this idea of a one-issue voter. You are a one-issue voter, and if anybody says you're a one-issue voter, nine times out of ten, that issue is on abortion, pro-choice, uh, or pro-life candidates. Inside the church, you could agree with with a, if we're honest, a Democrat's policies about most things, but if they were pro-choice, you felt like you couldn't vote for them because they were pro-murdering babies, is what we were taught. Right. And that was the and, language that and was And the used. opposite was true, is you would forgive a number of different things from a Republican candidate, from a like a you know, a morality standpoint, but as long as they were going to protect the sanctity of life, uh, then they got to pass. Absolutely. And I think our generation is starting to change that a little bit 
but we do want to unlearn the reasoning that we got into that because it's hard. It's hard to have those conversations. Part of today is also to equip you, the listener, if you get into those conversations so that you can know some of how we got to this point if you don't already. But we do know this is a highly emotional issue and that it can cause a lot of feelings. We're going to try and approach it with grace and with an open handedness and not be flippant really about any aspect of it, except for that intro, because that intro was funny. But Mm -hmm. today is not focusing on the medical side of things. Today is focusing on the rhetoric that was used to teach us and what we were taught in church. And I want to start with a few clarifications, kind of like we did last week, what our goals are for today's episode. We're not trying to convince anyone that abortion is good. We're not, we're not even going to try to try to go there because I don't believe that. We're not going to try to convince anyone to be pro-choice. I'm not going to try to convince anyone of that. And we're not going to call you a Christian nationalist if because of your Christian beliefs, you believe abortion should be banned. I have heard that from progressives, mm-hmm. and I think that's mean-spirited and it's wrong. And so we're not even going to go there. I, I want to say outright that that is wrong for someone to do that. Our goal for today, outright, is to show you how a highly sensitive, highly emotional topic was co-opted into a political movement. Because as we unlearn the bad things we were taught in youth group, we have to look at their origins. We have to look at where they come from and how we got to where we are today. So my goal for today is for you to listen to these things and come away with a kinder, more open-handed view of fellow believers who might approach the topic of abortion differently than you do. I don't want you to agree with them. I don't I don't really care if you agree with them to be honest. I simply want you to show the same love, patience, kindness, gentleness that we've been talking about and other issues when we disagree with people on topics. And I I would say that that is is key for for me is to step into is to see like the one thing that I needed to unlearn when it came to this was I just assumed that from Genesis 1, 1, you know, it, it was like there was darkness and God said, uh, abortion, abortion is, is murdering babies. And you, yeah. And then you can't vote for anybody who is uh pro-choice and still be a Christian. Boom. Let there be light. You know what I mean? Like that is the thing is I think that for all of us who have that ingrained in us approaching this topic, um, again, like you said, not to change your mind necessarily, but at least to open your mind to what was wrong or what was false about what we uh, have learned. And to other viewpoints that Christians have held historically. Today is going to yes. be more of an educational episode than conversational, probably. Uh, we have sure. a bunch of pages of notes. And yep. so we we did that because we want to make sure what we're telling you today is sourced. It is accurate. We're going to Mm -hmm. put these sources in the show notes. so You'll be able to read them if you want, because it's important we get this right. And here's the other thing. Normally, we we enter the topic like we are now. We uh, talk about what was bad. Then we talk about the good. And then we go into how do we go from here. I want to flip that up today because I want to first talk about what the pro-life movement got right. I think it's important to acknowledge those things first in this episode, because again, I don't want there to be any confusion that we're trying to convince you that abortion is good because we're not going, we're not doing that. So Eric, what did in your mind, what's the number one thing the pro-life movement got right? Yeah. I mean, the abortion at some level, no matter what you believe is ending a life. And I would say in most cases, I, Obviously, I'm leaving a little bit of room because there's probably some case out there that I don't know, but most well-meaning rational people would approach it and say, there is no abortion that you are going to have that you're just like super pumped about, right? And so you could go from the medical side of there was something wrong and you need to save uh, the life of the mother. Um, You could go from another side of there's maybe something wrong with with the baby or the fetus and it's not going to, you know, survive. or even to the point where it was like, hey, some mistakes were made or some choices were made and things were happening that we really didn't want to have happen in our choice. And so even if you look at it from like a birth control family planning side, there are tough decisions to be made here. And so uh, advocating for life um, for sure 
is is a great thing. Yeah, I think all of us, all all Christians, should be able to agree that we want to advocate for life. I would take it a step further and say any abortion is a tragedy. I I truly believe that because as someone who believes every life is created in the image of God, I have to think that any time that life is taken away is a tragedy. And we could get into what that means uh, post-birth in other episodes, but we're not going to talk about that today. But there is a a line of thinking from, I'm going to use a buzzword here, secular humanists and white progressives. Mm-hmm. If you remember last week, we we said that only about a third of them believe in a God like the one described in the Bible. So two thirds of them are agnostic to atheistic in their approach to things. A lot of them will say that abortions are just a medical procedure and that it doesn't really matter because of their view of when the potential for life actually turns into life. We're not going to get into that debate today, but I will say that my belief is that anytime there is an abortion, it's a tragedy and trying to protect against that so that life can exist. I think that's a good thing. While I might disagree with approaches, I think the good intention underlying that approach is that life is made in the image of God. Every human is made in the image of God. So that's where I think the good is. I also think, you know, there's the, there's the side of the pro-life movement that talks about personal responsibility and that you should be able to take account for the quote unquote consequences of your actions. And ideally in a post sin already restored, perfected world, people would be having sex responsibly and safely in a way that acknowledged and accounted for what sex was made. Sex was made for recreation and procreation. And so ideally people would have the responsibility, the personal responsibility to, to know what the, I don't want to say consequences, but the results of sex could happen. But we have stories all throughout the Bible of how personal responsibility never led to people not having sex. We have all going back to Genesis, people had sex out of God's design for sex since almost day one. Yeah. And I think we need to be explicit in saying that, that, that there are times where uh, sex happens that is not consensual, that is sinful and wrong that, you know, from the, from the abuse side as well. So we're not saying that all, you know, uh, that's the other part is you can't just throw everybody into the, well, you got to take personal responsibility for whatever, uh, you know, we can't go through an episode without mentioning purity culture. So it's not about what were you wearing? What were you saying? What did you say or not say like none of that, but in a consensual sexual relationship, physical relationship, yes, ideally people would be having, uh, having that responsibly knowing that it's for procreation and recreation, and you can have the recreation without the procreation. Correct. So I want to get those things out on the front end. We're now about 10 or 12 minutes into this. So hopefully you see our intentions in this and what we are going for for today. Hey, everyone, before we get into the back half of this episode, I want to take a quick minute to tell you about a new podcast launching Monday, November 7th called Unlearning Church Staff. One of the biggest groups leaving Christianity is made up of former church staff, whether paid or volunteer. In this new show, I'll be interviewing different people each week and talking to them about how they left church staff without leaving their faith. A preview episode is already out wherever you get podcasts. Once this episode is over, go subscribe to that new show so you get the first episode when it comes out on November 7th. That's Unlearning Church Staff coming out Monday, November 7th. That's it for me. Now we'll get back to this week's episode. Now we're going to get into what was bad about the approach that we were given. And again, it's going to get a little technical. It's going to be educational. We're going to try to make it interesting, but hopefully you will follow along with this. So what specifically was bad about the movement that said anything short of banning abortion is promoting quote unquote baby killing or that you cannot be a Christian if you call yourself pro-choice or support pro-choice candidates? What was bad about that? Yeah, I think specifically, it's like most of the things that we've been talking about this season and others is when you create a black or white, an in or out, a extreme viewpoint, um, it's it's just not tenable because 
the things that uh, are in the Bible, the, the things of our faith and morality, when you're dealing with people, it's very gray. There are gray areas here. And when you start to put your flag in the ground that says uh, v- uh, on these open-handed issues, as far as who you're voting for um, and determining whether they're Christian or not Christian, that's a problem. Um, especially when you look from a historical and a societal position. And we just assume that pro-life has been, you know, the pro-life approach has been the way forever. The way, um, the only it, way. The way, the only way. Yeah. Which Because which is it is true. a way. So, it is, but it's not yes. the way like we've been taught. Yeah. So, I mean, historically, we got to get this out of the way. If you're a Catholic or if you have a Catholic upbringing, yeah, uh, pro-life, anti-abortion approaches have been traditionally more of a Catholic uh, a- approach than than a Protestant approach. Although we would argue that 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 wasn't from the beginning of the Catholic Church. That happened a little bit later, but we're going to mention that later. Yeah. So let's go even further back. Let's go back to Jewish tradition. Mm-hmm. Eric, you've studied this side of things more than I have, but what I found really interesting when Roe v. Wade was overturned this summer was almost immediately there was a Jewish organization in Florida that sued the state of Florida under the guise of religious freedom that said that it was against their religion to not be able to protect the mother in the case of an, a, a woman needing an abortion because of her pregnancy would threaten her life. Can you talk a little bit yeah. about that history? Yeah. And it does line up with even in the beginning of, of the 17, 1800s of what, what we believe medically as well. So from the Jewish tradition all the way till now, there was a little bit more of this idea, uh, which Jewish law um, did not state that life begins at conception. It begins, uh, it, sources in the Talmud would say that the fetus is mere water before about 40 days of gestation. And so like after that period, the fetus is considered a physical part of the pregnant woman's body. And so it doesn't have its own uh, life or own independent rights. And in Jewish tradition, as far as I understand it from what I've read, the fetus is not viewed as separate from the parent's body until birth begins and the first, first breath of oxygen in the lungs, right? So God breathed life into Adam. That's that's when we would assume that life actually begins when you consider the history of the Jewish tradition. And so they didn't even consider it to be murder. If, uh, if you know, like you, you get this talking point too, where it's like, why is it a double homicide if you kill a pregnant woman? Well, that wasn't the case um, in Jewish tradition. If you even read in Exodus 21, it talks about two men who are fighting. They injure a pregnant woman re- uh, resulting in her miscarriage. And the verse talks about how if the harm is done, uh, if the only harm is done is a miscarriage, the perpetrator pays a fine. But if the pregnant woman is gravely injured, then that penalty is life for life as if it's a homicide. So if you just have an injury for a pregnant woman that results in a miscarriage, that's not a homicide. But if you actually injure the woman to death, that would be uh, an interpretation of it being a homicide. So there is a separation there. And overall, when you read, again, I'm not an expert in this, but what we've read is that uh, the uh, sort like in baseball, the tie goes to the runner, right? Like if there's a tie here, we are going to favor the life of the mother and the well-being of the mother, and so it does become um, more of a of a healthcare issue. So when you hear people um, who are pro pro choice talking about abortion being healthcare, uh, that would also be mirrored in the Jewish tradition. And then if you fast forward to early colonial times, even in the 1700s, uh, they were they just assumed that there was this time called the quickening, which is when the mother could physically feel the baby moving. Uh, and so that would be like, Hey, anything before the quickening. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a life. It's not alive until it actually starts to move. It's so, the potential for whether life, or not but it's not quite life. Correct. Yet. Yeah. Right. But whether or not like that, I, I can already hear the yeah, buts with the scientific thing and blah, blah, blah. Like, great. It, it, we're not talking about that. I just want you to know that historically speaking, and even to uh, the Jewish tradition today, which is where we would originally find uh, our faith in, in in the Christian tradition, there is still this sense that um, life is not life until breath, until first breath. And so I would even step into that to say that like where I stand is that's that's where I don't know and I don't have it fully figured out as far as what do we consider from God's point of view. 
is that baby alive until they breathe or is it alive at conception? Like that's, there's a big spectrum there. And I don't believe that there is a firm answer when it comes biblically, not necessarily medically. There, well, there's a, there is a gulf of time, both biblically and scientifically, where depending on who you talk to, it is life at conception all the way through yep. life at first breath. And so there is a yep. gulf there that historically and traditionally, and out, we'll get into this later and outside of the evangelical church, there is disagreement there. So there are multiple ways that people approach that. So that's the historic all the way back to old Testament times view of this. If we look into what we were taught in youth group, where we have to start is probably back in the sixties. Like Eric mentioned, Catholics were more hardline pro-life anti-abortion and the Southern Baptist convention and Baptists in general often took a more hands-off approach and they dismissed it as a Catholic issue. In 1968, Christianity Today organized a conference with the Christian Medical Society where they brought in 26 theologians from different strands of evangelicalism to discuss the abortion issue. This was before Roe v. Wade. And when it was over, the statement that they released, that these 26 theologians released, said, quote, whether the performance of an induced abortion is sinful, we are not agreed but about the necessity of it and the permissibility for it under certain circumstances, we are in accord. So going back to 1968, the leading evangelical thought was, we don't know if this is sinful or not, but we do know that mm -hmm. there are certain circumstances in order to, it needs to happen. Fast forward right. a couple of years and a poll in 1970 by the Baptist Sunday School Board found that a majority of Southern Baptist pastors supported, supported abortion in a number of instances, including if the woman's mental or physical health was at risk or in the case of rape or fetal deformity. And at this time, there were a lot of states that you know were starting to do abortion restrictions, everything like that. And so what's interesting about this Baptist, uh, this Baptist view was Texas had one of the most restrictive uh, abortion laws. And three years later in 1973, a poll by the Baptist standard found that 90% of Texas Baptists even felt that Texas's uh, abortion laws were too restrictive. Yeah. And two years before Roe, the SBC passed a resolution that denied abortion on demand. So they didn't think it should be used for that quote unquote birth control, but they acknowledged the need for legislation that would allow it in some cases. So even before Roe Put this into effect, the Southern Baptist Convention determined that abortion was needed in some cases. Once Roe was put in and legalized abortion, the SBC endorsed a position throughout the 70s that, quote, reflected a middle ground between the extreme of abortion on demand and the opposite extreme of all abortion as murder, which I find extremely interesting. For the first decade ish after Roe, yep. The SBC, who is leading the way today in conservative theology and politics, they said that there was a middle ground between the extreme of abortion on demand and abortion, all abortion is mortal. I find that extremely interesting. So to go even further, a 1971 Southern Baptist Convention resolution stated, quote, society has a responsibility to affirm through the laws of the state a high view of the sanctity of human life, including fetal life. We call upon Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. Two years later, in 1973, W.A. Criswell, who was the SBC president in the late 60s, he said, quote, I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. And it has always, therefore, seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. And this one, this one was shocking. James Dobson, the founder of Focus on the Family and someone who's been a highly outspoken pro-lifer. In 1973, around that same time, he said that the Bible was silent on the matter 
and that it was plausible for an evangelical to believe, quote, a developing embryo or fetus was not regarded as a full human being. As you're listening to these things, the two things come up for me as I keep hearing it is one, there is an emphasis on the health of the mother, which I think that we have, we've, uh, whether we've lost or downplayed, I think in our current society, that has gone away in the last 50 years. And then two, there is an emphasis to allow space for believers to have differing views on the opinion. Correct. And one of the things I find really interesting is that tension that all of these spiritual leaders were walking at the time. The tension between abortion on demand and abortion as healthcare. And they were willing to get into the messiness of that and to walk in that tension without saying it's a black or white issue. They were willing to live in that gray. And one thing I want to be clear about is that not everyone within the Southern Baptist Convention was open to these things. There have always been people who are more staunchly pro-life and that were anti-abortion, but there was a liberty given amongst believers. And then some people like Dobson, they changed their opinion as they learned more, as they studied more. And that's totally allowable. I'm not one to say that your opinion yesterday has to be your opinion today. What I'm doing is I'm trying to illustrate how only 40 or 50 years ago, there was a disagreement on the topic of abortion while still showing and allowing for the idea that the person on the other side of the debate still follows Jesus as much as people on my side. So there's an implication there. (laughs) Think about it. The people that probably led you in youth group, they were alive and going through at this time. So we are one, I mean, especially if you're uh, Jonathan's age or my age, you know, if you're in your thirties, like we are still in that generation where that, that generation of youth group leaders and pastors that raised us at some point, either probably believed there was gray area there or at least were raised in an environment where it wasn't so staunchly held as a close-fisted area. Correct. And it wasn't until 1980 that the SBC shifted their approach and their language. That is when they, they endorsed a conventional constitutional amendment that would prohibit abortion except in the cases where the mother's life was in danger. They also shifted their language from, quote, fetal life to quote, unborn or preborn human life. So what this did, that language change took the issue from a developing organism dependent on a woman's body to a full human with the same status and rights as women. A marketing ploy. Correct. As we've talked about before, the language we use is incredibly important and it it shifts the conversation and it shifts that. And it was in 1984 that the Southern Baptist Convention again shifted to call a fetus, quote, a living individual human being. So Mm. something changed from the 60s through the mid mid to late 70s that changed this conversation and evangelical approaches to abortion. Yeah, and if if it wasn't a complete 180, it was at least a hard 90 degree turn within a period of about 10 years. And so- there has to be a source for that. That's not something that's like slowly developing over generations of study. This is like something that happened in a very short window of time. So uh, there had to be a catalyst. Jonathan, what was it? Yeah. What was the catalyst? Racism and taxes. I mean, to, to put it, to put it bluntly, politics, politics, politics overtook religion for political gain. Like people took a religious issue and, and, twisted it so that they could get what they wanted politically and racially as well. I would, I would say and racially as well. So you might be listening and your fists might come up right here because you might want to say, well, Oh, you're going to blame racism for everything. Well, the reason we did last week's racism episode before this week's episode was to show you how racism has impacted the church because that racism comes into play right here. Mm -hmm. And in 1954, segregation in public schools was outlawed. So public schools had to be integrated. That led to the opening of private Christian schools all across the South. 
If you have been to a private Christian school that was opened in the 50s or 60s, it was opened as a segregation academy. It was open so that white evangelicals could send their children to schools with only other white people and not have to integrate their schools. There was actually a school, I think it was in Alabama or Louisiana, that within a year of segregation, there wasn't a single white kid in public schools because every Mm -hmm. single parent in that community pulled their kid out to go to a white Christian academy. So instead of having their kids go to school with black kids, white evangelical churches began opening these private Christian schools that were only available to white students. And we've talked a lot about Dr. Jerry Falwell, one of the leaders of the moral majority. He did this. There was, there's a school to this day called Lynchburg Christian Academy um, that was founded in the 60s by Dr. Falwell as a white segregation academy. Mm-hmm. So not Man, only- Jerry just might as well be a co-host in this season. You know, we just bring on Jerry, you know, <laughs> just consider him just a, you know, he's just a third party observer right here. This is great. And like we've mentioned in some other episodes, he repented from a lot of this in his latter years. So I want to okay. at least give credit and I be intellectually honest enough to say he, he saw the bad in a lot of this later in his life. So these, these white Christian academies not only were they quote unquote segregation academies, but they were also tax exempt because they were tied to churches. So people were able to give their money and get tax credit for it. And churches were able to use their money tax exempt to run these churches. So they were a financial boom for a lot of the quote unquote mega churches of the time. So you can imagine there were a lot of people who didn't like tax exempt status going to segregation academies for lack of a better term. There was a challenge against that in 1971, a Supreme court ruling in green versus Connolly declared that a private school that discriminates in admissions on the basis of race would not be allowed to keep their tax exempt status. So this was 1971, a couple years before Roe. Mm. At the same time of this, there was a conservative activist named Paul Weyrich who was trying to motivate and build the conservative Republican base. He was not a pastor. He was a conservative Republican who was trying to make political gain. So after that Green versus Connolly ruling, he teamed up with Dr. Falwell to start the moral majority. It was actually Weyrich who gave them the name moral majority, not Falwell. The first attempt at motivating the conservative base was around this tax-exempt ruling when they tried to claim religious freedom for the schools. That should ring a little alarm bell with some of the stuff we're hearing in today's culture. They said that government was assaulting their religious freedoms by requiring the white private schools to be desegregated or lose their tax-exempt status. Thankfully, that religious freedom cry didn't bring about the energy and the passion that they were hoping for evangelicals didn't rally around the fact of, yeah, let's be racist. So thankfully that didn't work. Yeah. And I think this is another instance where, you know, we need to point it out again is that there have always been bad actors trying to co-opt mainline Christians. So are we saying that, uh, that everyone who opened up a private school, you know, Christian school was, had racist thought? No white supremacist. No, but there are people in the background that are waiting for that opportunity to jump in and to say, okay, great. We can, we can kind of Trojan horse this thing. And so, uh, this is another instance where you see probably a good, well-meaning majority of people that are going, oh yeah, I, I agree with this religious freedom that yeah, religious freedom. And then all of a sudden underlying that is this you know, this subversive racism and even white supremacy when it comes to it. But part of that Green versus Connolly ruling, I don't remember exactly how integrated these two were, but Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, mm-hmm. they were a big, <laughs> they were a big portion of this lawsuit that made it to the Supreme Court because yeah. they were going to lose their tax exempt status because they didn't allow black students. And Bob Jones even said himself that it was because of the Bible and he didn't believe in mixing races and they wouldn't allow black. And once they did integrate, they didn't allow black and white people to date. They had to like the date. Oh my God. Bob Jones university is, he said this on Larry King, like he, in 2000, he had this interview with Larry King and he like, 
he said it out loud. He's like, yeah, well, biblically this. And, and, and he said, you know, basically keeping the races separate was, was biblical because of, they wanted to keep their blood pure is like, oh man. And Bob Jones university had a lot of influence in the homeschool and Christian school world throughout the seventies, eighties, nineties, even some into the two thousands. So if you weren't around this, don't just shrug it off as, oh, that's not true because I didn't experience that. This happened. And there is plenty of documentation to back it up. The thing I find really interesting is going back to the founding of the moral majority, self-admittedly, Dr. Falwell said that he had never once preached a sermon on abortion until 1978. So through the debate going into Roe versus Wade, through the first few years after Roe v. Wade, Dr. Falwell never said anything publicly from the pulpit about abortion. Then we get to 78. The Connolly thing had happened. The religious freedom motivation didn't work. You've got Weyrick and Falwell trying to start the moral majority to get people involved in conservative Republican politics. And then in 1978, the reason we mentioned the Catholics at the beginning of this is because they play a huge part in this. The weekend before the election in 1978, pro-life, anti-abortion Catholics passed out leaflets in church parking lots during the final weekend of four Senate races. The following Tuesday, all four anti-abortion Republicans beat their Democratic opponents who were favored to win the race. All four were underdogs after the Catholics passed out anti-abortion pamphlets at church. Those four pro-choice candidates lost. And this is key because if you, because at that point, abortion was not the wedge issue that it is today. It was not a big deal. And so, you know, political strategists at the time, you know, especially Republican political strategists are like, this is way low on my priority of talking about or having a key stance on it. So that factored in. The other factor was religious people as a voting block were not the kind of wave that you see now. Now, um, one of the most motivated voting blocks is white evangelicals today. But back then, it was not, it, th- that was not a group that you wanted to try and win over. And so this was a time where you could actually see, oh, if we can weaponize, if we can weaponize this group of people uh, to vote and talk about something that they believe in, we can sneak in other legislation and keep political power and where we want to. Who was president in 1978? Do you remember? Nixon? I don't know. Sunday school teacher, Jimmy Carter. Oh, Carter. But he was a Democrat. I wasn't alive back then, so I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. But he was a Democrat. So you can see that this, this wasn't that issue. Like Christians weren't overwhelmingly only Republican at the time. There was a, there was a liberty amongst Christians on who you could vote for and how you applied your faith to government what this whole right. season's been about. But back in 78, you still had that liberty. This hadn't been turned into a wedge issue until right. they saw the results of that weekend in 1978. If we could rally all the Christians around one issue, then we could use them as a voting block that's now going to be able to support some other things that are on our candidates list. Now, again, I want to say politically, does that thing still happen today on both sides? Yes. Are, are there people on the left that are trying to woo people of color and other, you know, other uh, uh, income-based voting blocks? Yes, of course that happens. But it's important to talk about specifically when it comes to abortion. This was one of the catalysts here on weaponizing uh, church people for these sorts of political gains. And to to be clear again, there were people who were pro-life, anti-abortion long before this 1978 election. It's not like yeah. all of a sudden this one thing happened and all of a sudden anyone who went from pro-choice went to pro-life and changed their opinion. This was the mm-hmm. turning point for the rhetoric change. This is what led yes. to those changes of the Southern Baptist Convention in the 80s that went from there is liberty in here. We're going to live in the tension between these two things to know there's only one way to do this. This is where right. the roots of the idea you can't be Christian and pro-choice trace back to. If you think about it, this is very topical to when we're recording this, but if you think about it, it was a lower, 
it was a it was a lower issue of importance to the church leaders. Similar, I mean, it was it was still a problem, right? You know, okay, what are we talking about? Sanctity of life, yes, but similar to today, where it's like predatory lending and interest practices. Lots of stuff in the Bible that says that's not okay, but like nobody's making that their one issue voting until it starts to become weaponized as like, oh, hey, by the way, we could campaign on eliminating debt or on capping interest rates. And so think about it that same way where politi- where you would say walking in the church, uh, is, is abortion some, a moral issue that we need to talk about? Yes. Is it something that you would, you know, put all of your voting efforts behind like back then before this? No. In the same way today is predatory lending and high interest rates and all that sort of, is that an issue biblically? Yes, it is. Is it something that you would say, I'm a one issue voter based on interest rates uh, and, and you know usury and stuff like that? Not many people would be there. There are some, but that's what we're trying to illustrate is it didn't change until the leaders in these evangelical denominations started to partner up with these political leaders to say, wow, I think we've got something here that we could leverage for power and gain. And so why do we talk about this history? It's because the people who taught us in youth group, they were the ones who grew up in the 70s and 80s as this rhetoric was changing. In their most influential years, they were taught by church leaders who had been co-opted by a political agenda. And so that's what they were taught. They're the ones who are today the quote unquote single issue voters. So that's why it's important. The people who taught us were influenced by these things that now with history, we can look back and see, oh, we've got this 2020 vision of history that we can say, this is how that happened. This is why that happened. This is what that led to. So our parents, our church leaders growing up, they were living in the moment. And I can give a, I can give some grace to living through that and and buying into it because it's what the people leading them were saying. But now looking back and seeing how this was manipulated, how this rhetoric was manipulated to get us to where we were in the nineties, we were in the 2000, where we are today. I can't consciously move forward and not acknowledge that this idea that Christian equals pro-life anti-abortion has always been there. Because it hasn't. And we see that we spent the last 30, 45 minutes showing you that this hasn't always been the case. You take an issue that that has been kind of on the side and now turn it into this main core issue that I think if we were to to rewind 100 years or even 70 years, we Christians back then would be looking at that going, are really that's what we're. That's what we're making the one issue. We've allowed all these other things to happen because we've elevated that issue so high. Like there are so many places that people across the political aisle agree on that would literally help the people that Jesus tells us to care about. We agree on so many issues, but because someone might be pro-choice, we cannot support or agree with a even a bill that they put in place because that person is pro-choice. That's what we've been taught in the church. And they don't just have a different opinion at this point. They are baby murderers. Do you see that? That is so crazy to go like, okay, for anybody to like, tell me, Hey, if I say, Hey, you know what? Honestly, I, I'm, I don't love abortion and I I don't, I would love to see those numbers go down, but I am pro-choice because I believe that that's the best way to do it. For someone to like, look at me and go, baby murder. Like I've had that happen online. I have too. It's like, I've never had an abortion. I've never taken anybody to do, you know, I've never done anything remotely supporting that. I don't have the mechanics to have an abortion. You know what I mean? Like I don't even have that plumbing or those parts, but somebody to look at you and go, because you believe that way, you're a baby murderer. Like, whoa, dude, we have, we've gone cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs at this point. We will get back to that conversation in just a minute. Hey, Jonathan, how healthy would you say conservative Christian culture is right now on a scale of one to 10? Like a two and a half. Are you like super pumped to open up Twitter and just see what, you know, conservative evangelicals are talking about in the news today? I don't click on the trending topics. I avoid it. 
<laughs> well, at Unlearning Youth Group, we're always trying to find the good in any type of situation. And now you can too with your very own Unlearning Youth Group. Find the good t shirt in our merch store today. Check it out at unlearningyouthgroup.com. And now back to the conversation. So, where do we go from here? How do we take the good of every life is made in the image of God and that any abortion is a tragedy? How do we unlearn the bad of, okay, this, this approach isn't historically accurate. And what do we yeah. do with that moving forward? I think um, in the way that we've talked about a lot over the past seasons is there's a difference between uh, what your philosophy on this is or your belief is and how you're going to apply that to your action or your political views. So I think you and I would, would both agree on this, uh, or at least in some way, or like, hey, do we want to see abortion numbers go down? Yes. I want to end abortion. Do I want to end, the, like, I will explicitly yeah, I say, mean, I want to end the need for abortion. I would agree with that. I would want to end the need for abortion. I can, I can acknowledge that abortion is probably never going to go away in the same way as murder is never going to go away. Theft is never going to go away. You know, those things are never going to go away. That doesn't mean we don't do anything about it. Sin exists. Bad things exist. Right. So it's like, but the best approach, I think you and I would agree is not necessarily to legislate it and make it illegal. And so I think that that's the type of thing that we need to be able to open up and go like, let's figure out just like what, what we do here when we find the good, it's where can we go and find where we align? And I think once the conversation changes to say, okay, how can we help make this work in a way that's going to, you know, make room for different opinions of how to apply it and move forward, but at least acknowledge we have the same intent. I think there are very few people in this world, regardless of what you see on the news, regardless of the photos that you see, especially within Christianity, especially within Christianity, there are very few people in this world that are like pro killing fetuses. They're just, you know, like they're, they're advocating and if you're a Christian, that, you're pro that. I really question if you're actually pro, if you're actually a Christian, I'll, I, I'll go there. I mean, but like, there's always, there's always an underlying thing there, but, but the other side as well has latched onto that to say, okay, well, you know what? Uh, 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 abortion without, what does it say? On demand without restriction. Well, that's only in response to the hardened side on the right that says absolutely not. And so now we can't actually have a conversation about what we really mean. And so allowing for openings there and letting people move forward together and seeing that there's not a consensus, number one. And number two, I personally believe we got to go back to valuing women in this conversation. I think it's like one in three or one in four women by the time they reach menopause will have had to have something along the lines of abortive care or it will have affected them. So it's like, that's not a tiny amount of people. And so those are 50% of our population. There's a good amount of 50% of our population that needs to be open and, and able to have these discussions without being vilified as baby murderers. Correct. Somehow we went from the democratic view in the nineties was safe, legal, and rare to now yeah. on demand without restriction. So I, I think if we look at this from a gospel approach, I think on demand without restrictions, that's never been a biblical or a Christian evangelical approach of any denomination, really. I don't think any denomination has ever said on demand without restrictions. Most places have said, like we mentioned with the, the Baptist conventions of the 60s and 70s, there's a time and place. We are not going to cheer these things on, but for the medical health of a woman, there has to be concessions made. And I think that, I mean, that's where I land. I call myself pro-choice anti-abortion. So that that's probably, that's kind of where I actually had someone who is a friend of mine literally laugh at me when I told him that's what my position was because he didn't think that was possible until I explained it right. to him. And then if you get technical, he's now pro-choice anti-abortion. Like if you, if you go by the definitions, like that's what he believes because he believes that there should be protections for the life of the mother. And that, that by nature is a pro-choice viewpoint. If we, if we boil us down to, to where we are, but the other thing I want people to so realize not getting into forward, the rhetoric, I think, I think what you're saying too, is not getting into the rhetoric. Don't, don't use the words like baby murderers. Don't, you know, go into that, uh, all of those things, because I think once we label people with that rhetoric and once we label people with those things, um, and even the scary things like, uh, you know, late term or partial birth abortion, there's just a big old boogeyman about how those things are out there. It's like, when you actually look at the numbers, 
right? It's not the, it's not what people are talking about in the same way as like, when you look at the numbers, the abortion rate goes down more often when a Democrat has been in power uh, in the presidency, as opposed to a Republican. Now, I personally don't believe that the president, other than, you know, appointing Supreme Court justice at this point, but I don't believe that the president has a huge amount of sway, but even just to think I'm going to vote for a president based on that view, the abortion numbers have gone down when Democrats are in office. And I want to I clarify a little bit. Abortion numbers in general have been trending down for the last 20 or 30 years. I think it, right. the rate yep. goes down more under Democratic presidents than under conservatives. So it's still going down under con- Republican presidencies, but not as much. So I, yep. I, I just want to be fair with that. I, I, I knew what you meant, sure. but someone's listening to that and they're putting their fists up and saying, yeah, but. So I want to at least acknowledge that. The other thing yep. I want to point out is that this idea of you can't be a Christian and vote for a pro-choice candidate is a very white evangelical opinion. It does not line up with Christianity as a whole. I'm going to read some stats to you because you guys know at this point, I like stats support for Roe being overturned, meaning not allowing choice is almost exclusively a white evangelical Christian minority. Non-white evangelicals are statistically majority pro-choice. Black Protestants, they're 73% pro-choice. White mainline non-evangelical Protestants are 70% pro-choice. White Catholics are 59% pro-choice. Hispanic Catholics are 57% pro-choice. I fi- I do find it really interesting, this is a different topic, that Catholicism has typically been and still from the church leadership is very pro-choice anti-abortion, but the people mm-hmm. in the pews are majority pro-choice. That I just find that interesting. And then Hispanic Protestants right. are 52% pro-choice. Of the only group with the majority anti-choice base, which is white evangelicals, only 52% agree with overturning Roe and taking away abortion access. So if yep. you grew up in the church bubble, if you're someone who believes that you can't be a Christian and be pro-choice, those statistics show that you're kind of in the minority. That's not the majority view. Right. And I think it's worth saying too, it's like, we need to separate out that political side to it. Because again, our application being pro-choice, there are people that say, hey, there there needs to be choice. Because that, that would be the other thing for me too, is like, I admitted, I'm not exactly sure I'm settled on where life begins. I'm not. I know that's shocking. I will will say flat out, I am not 100% sure that when life begins. I have doubts and questions about that. According to God, like accountability wise, you know, spiritually, everything else like that. I I don't know. I mean, can I make the, the argument that, that it's potential life? Yes. And at one point heartbeat, could it live on its own, you know, away from the mother? I don't know. Uh, but what I would say is like, can we get to a point where we could say, pol- politically speaking, rights wise, do I believe that a woman has the right to make choices that impact her own body? And of course, everybody shaking their fists is like, yeah, but it's not just her body because of blah, blah. Okay, great, 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 great. But like, that's a gray issue. So I, I think I have to err on that side of still allowing there to be some sort of agency for a woman who's being forced one way or the other for a medical procedure. And it's like, can we do that? Can we make room for that when we say pro-choice? There's plenty of people in that pro-choice list that are still like what you and I both said, we want to bring that abortion number there or reduce, or what do you say? Eliminate, I would say the, eliminate need the need for abortion or abortion. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. And I would say like, if you were to go, Hey, who wants to eliminate the need for abortion? You know, I'm guessing that number would be huge. We can disagree on what it takes to get there. I'm okay with that. Yes. And it's, a, it's like anything with faith. It's like, do I believe, do I believe that divorce is, is, is not God's design for marriage? Yes, of course. Do I think that we should legislate it to outlaw divorce for people that don't believe that? No. I mean, as a, as a Christian, I can have beliefs personally, but as an American, I can acknowledge the rights exist for people who don't believe the same way that I do. And again, I, I, I don't want to hide my view because, and I will say, if you want to know how I got from pro-life, what we're talking about, where all abortion is wrong, like I, I can tell you plenty of stories of 
what led me down this journey to where I am today. Feel free to reach out on social at Jonathan underscore Carol and email us hello at unlearningyouthgroup.com. Those go directly to me. I'll be glad to tell you my story of how I got to where I am today. So I don't want to hide what my specific position is, but I want to be true to what I said at the beginning of the episode. I'm not trying to convince you to become the same thing I am. You have your beliefs. You have your interpretations. You might be fully convinced that life begins at conception. If that's your opinion, okay, I accept that. Mm-hmm. All I'm asking is that you don't call me a baby murderer or that you don't call (laughs) people like me a fake Christian or a lukewarm Christian or a false teacher or one of the names that I have specifically been called. You can have your views. I am 100% okay with someone being pro-life and wanting abortion access to, to not be there. I disagree with you. I love you. I disagree with you. We can follow Jesus together. I think it's your right to have that Mm -hmm. opinion. At the same time, I just want us to turn the temperature down when you talk about pro-choice versus pro-life. And I wanted, I want this episode to stick in the back of your head so that you have the history of how we got here, but you can also put a voice to a position because at this point we're 36 episodes into this podcast. I think it's pretty obvious that both me and Eric are following Jesus today and want to help other people do the same. Mm-hmm. We we've built that. So I would hope you don't say that someone like me is not a Christian. So moving forward, my goal is to show you that there's a wide range of beliefs on idea of abortion. There's a wide range of beliefs on when life begins. Mm -hmm. There's a wide range of beliefs amongst believers for how we put these questions into government and political policy. I think the one thing that we need to catch ourselves when we're going down this road, especially if, if you're in a spot where you're getting ready to throw those words that Jonathan, Jonathan said out at someone like us, is to really dig down deep. And and what I'm hoping with the history of this is it helps you explore the background of, am I acting, feeling, believing this way because I have a deep moral conviction based on my time spent reading scripture and spent, you know, praying and spent, you know, with the Holy spirit, or is this something that ultimately supports my political ideology? Cause that's what I think you see in the history of a lot of these topics we're talking about this year. Is that or the season is that it's not necessarily as much about my deeply held moral conviction, and it's much more around my identity politics. Yes, and like we've said from the beginning of this season, we can agree on Jesus and disagree on how to apply his teachings to government. There's a gulf. My explicit position with this season is to turn the temperature of politics down so that we can be united by Christ and not divided by our politics. Jesus is bigger than our politics. He is bigger than our view on how government should legislate abortion access. He's bigger than racism. He's bigger than Christian nationalism. He's bigger than all these things we've talked about. If we can be united in Jesus and understand that in him, one of his biggest requests in the Bible was that we would be unified, that we would not be split apart. So if that's what Jesus prayed for, if that's what he prayed over us, then we need to be doing what we can in order to unify the church, even if we have different political issues. And this is, a I hate both sides-isms, but this is a truly a both sides issue to where we've got people on both sides of the political aisle using the Bible and using the gospel for political gain and dividing the church in the process. And we got to stop that. Yeah. Jesus called us to unity. And he also said that the world would know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. And that leads us into where we're going next week. Next week, we're going to be talking about LGBTQ rights, just like today's topics. We're just getting deeper and deeper this, Eric. I don't know what we're doing yeah, here. Okay. Why are we doing this? We'll just keep digging. Keep digging. <laughs> but it's been said that you can't be a Christian and support gay marriage. I was literally said, that, someone said that to me in my TikTok comments this week. So 
Next yeah. week, we're going to be talking marriage, health care, and the balance between religious freedoms and equal rights. Again, we're not going to try to convince mm-hmm. you on a particular way moving forward, but we're going to discuss some of the history in this and the way this has not necessarily been presented to us in fair terms. For now, though, go ahead and subscribe to the show, rate it and review it wherever you get podcasts. Share this one with a friend if you found it interesting. If you have any feedback or you have any questions, if you want to hear more of how we got to where we are today, you can get in touch with us at hello at unlearningyouthgroup.com. Eric is at ericw 712 on all the major platforms, and I am at Jonathan underscore Corona on them as well. All the sources that we pulled from today will be in the show notes, so feel free to read some of those. And as always, thank you for making us a part of your day. We will talk to you again next week. Cool.